Hey, my name is Doug Rouse. I get to be the pastor at New River Church, and this is our podcast. We hope you feel inspired and encouraged as a result of today's message. If you'd like more information, check us out at newriverchurch.org. So let's start with this memory verse, Leviticus 26, verse 12. God is speaking. I mean, just wrap your minds around this. God is speaking, and he says this. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Do you want that? Do you really want that? Because I think sometimes we have this religious definition of God, and we don't really want that. But do I want God? Not the religious definition of God, but God. Because wanting God, uh, as we see, there's complications involved in that relationship with God. He is a holy God. Holy, meaning he's completely separate. He's totally unlike anything else that you and I have, like Emily alluded to in prayer. Like, we, we don't have any words to really describe God, do we? We kind of talk about wild oceans and stuff like that, but, I mean, even that falls short. But God is totally something else, unlike anything that you and I have ever seen, heard, experienced before. He's holy. And that poses a problem for you and me because we're not holy. So we can't ask God to be less than holy because that would make him less than God. And we can't make ourselves holy because that would make us more than human. So now we have a problem. How do we become, how do we walk with this God? And this is the book of Leviticus. It's the first time in the Bible when God says, I'm going to show you how I'm going to make a way for this to happen, for us to have this relationship. And we've learned the last couple of weeks This is week three. Uh, We learned that holiness and grace, they're like train tracks. They run all the way through the book of Leviticus, and the whole thing is built on these two things. So with holiness and grace laid down, we've we've already talked about those. This morning now, we can dive right in to the first chapter of Leviticus, which is chapter 16. And you say, well, why are we starting in chapter 16? And this is because in the ancient Near East, they, they did not think like you and I think. They thought in concentric circles like a bullseye. You and I think in a straight line. So we think A goes to B and then to C and then to D and so forth. That's how you and I just naturally think. We don't even think about how we think. They did not think that way. They thought in concentric circles. So for them, the most important thing is actually the middle, the the concept in the middle. And this happens to be Leviticus chapter 16. And we're even going to see an example out of this when we look in chapter 16, verse 1 in a moment. You'll see kind of how how the book, it actually is laid out kind of like a bullseye. And actually, if you have... um, Your student journal that we put together, um, on page two of that, there's a little uh, chart that helps you to even see that sort of illustrates how the book is laid out in these, uh, in in like a a bullseye, like concentric circles. So um, if you and I were writing Leviticus, we would probably start with chapter 16, and then we would 
prove, spend the rest of the book proving why chapter 16 is so important. Or we might end with chapter 16 after we laid out our argument to write 16 might be our big conclusion. But we wouldn't think to put it in the middle of the book, yet they did. So this is why we're going to start with chapter 16. It actually really is the most important chapter, and the whole entire book is built around it. So you can't really look at the purity laws or the, uh, the, the moral laws or the priesthood or any of the feasts and sacrifices. You can't really understand any of those without first understanding the day of atonement. There's no way to, there's no way to like overestimate, over talk about how important this day was and still is to Jewish people and is to you and me. So chapter 16. Now the best way for us to get into chapter 16 is we're going to start with verses 29 through 34. So let's just, I'll start by reading that, okay? Verse 29. Leviticus 16, 29. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the 10th day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you. Why? Because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It's a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priest and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, <clears throat> a couple of things real quick this, to notice as we get started there. Verse 29, look at verse 29, verse 31, and verse 34. You notice how the same phrase is used? This is to be a lasting ordinance. Why is that repeated three times in these couple of verses? Because sin is a constant problem for you and me. I don't need forgiveness once. I need forgiveness every day. And so do you. This is to be a lasting ordinance. It's not something that you do just one time. It's something that we do repeatedly every year to, to take care of this issue, this sin issue that has a way of creeping up and building up on us. And so for them, it was an annual deal. You and me, as followers of Jesus Christ, he paid the ultimate price on the cross. Guess what? You and I get to live under 1 John 1.9. I love that verse. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not a question of if you sin. It's a question of when you sin. And when you do, you need forgiveness. I need forgiveness. So therefore, this is to be a lasting ordinance. That's important there, okay? The second thing is notice that verse 33, he says to make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting, for the altar, for the priests and all the members. Why? Because sin is a pervasive problem. 
It affects all of us. It affects everything. It affects creation. It affects your household. It affects your thought life, your words, your actions, your, all your interactions with other people. Sin affects all of it. Therefore, on the Day of Atonement, it was a day meant to cover all of it. Right? That's another one. Now, chapter 16, here in chapter 16, he talks about this Day of Atonement. What is it? In Hebrew, the word day means yom. And the word atonement is the word kippur. So yom kippur is the day of atonement. It just happened this past Thursday. Jews all around the world still recognize yom kippur, the day of atonement. For them, it was indeed the most important day on their whole entire calendar. Now, the word kippur, the Hebrew word kippur, it means to cover. That's all it means, simply. So, atone is to cover. Another way of thinking about it, some people, it's sort of cheesy, but you think about atone as being at one, or atonement is at one ment. God makes us at one with himself. Um, I like to think of it as this, like God would say to you and me, so you sinned, I've got it covered. It means God covers it. He covers it. You sinned. You, you're guilty. You broke it. You created a debt. I've got it covered, God says. He atones for it. I think it's awesome. That, my friend, is grace, isn't it? We talked about that last week. God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't need to cover it for us at all, does he? But yet he chooses to do it. He willingly chooses to do it. And then notice one more thing out of this little section. Verse 30 says, atonement will be made for you. In other words, it's not something that you can do for yourself. It's something that God has to do for you. And this is grace right here. So what happened on the Day of Atonement? All right, let's get into it. Um, this is going to drive my wife crazy. Um, but because uh, she hates it when I do this, she, she likes it when we read the whole chapter and then go back and talk about it. She hates it when I break it up, but I'm going to break it up. I'm going to read the first two verses and then stop for a second because we got to just look at something here, okay? So let's start with chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he's not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Okay, stop right there for a second. Now, you read verse 1 and you say, what? Somebody died? How'd that happen? When did that happen? You see that? The Lord spoke after the death. When, when did they die? This is an example of what I mean by how they thought. This story of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, dying, that happens in Leviticus chapter 10. The story happens in chapter 10. You skip ahead five chapters, and it says, and he spoke to Moses after they died. You say, what? If you and I were telling the story, we would put chapter 16 right after chapter 10. 
But we don't, but they don't do that because they don't think that way. You and I think in a line. We think these guys die. We have to explain why. We move the story forward. They're thinking in a circle. So they've got these guys dying over here. <laughs> and then over here is the, anyway. You see what, you see what I mean? And, and actually, if you, it's better if you look at page two in your journal. You can see how, how it's actually laid out like that. And you think, it's just, it's just weird how they thought. But the story is found in chapter 10. You go back to chapter 10, and you see what happened. Uh, these two priests, Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother. Aaron has sons. They get ordained as the first priests in Israel. And then two of the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, they walk into the presence of the Lord. And the Bible says they had unauthorized fire. It, it was, in other words, God didn't ask for it. They, they, they did something against the way that, that God had said to do it. They broke protocol. And the, the chapter also implies that they were probably drunk when they did it. So these two sons walk into the presence of God, wasted, against protocol, and they died. They were killed right in the presence of the Lord. Now, you say, well, God killed them? Yes, they were killed by God, but did God, to say that God killed them would be like you saying, I burnt my hand on the stove. Did the stove burn you? Yeah, but the stove's hot. That's what stoves do. It's your fault that you got burned. Does that make sense? To say that God killed them isn't to say that God somehow punished them. It's a consequence of their carelessness in the presence of God. And this is really what the book of Leviticus is laying out. It's like, do you understand? I'm a holy God. You're an unholy people. We've got to work out a plan for us to relate, or this is going to be deadly for you. See? And so these guys don't recognize that, and they die as a result. So now, after that event, God comes to Moses, and he says, hey, Moses, okay, listen, here's the deal. Look at verse 2. Tell your brother Aaron, you can't come whenever you choose. You just can't do it, to come into the most holy place behind a curtain, or else what's going to happen? You're going to die. And I don't want you to die, Aaron, so here's how we've got to do this. And he talks about this. So now, the, another, another thing we've got to cover real quick is this thing, most holy place behind the curtain. Um, I want to just show you a picture of the tabernacle so that you can picture it in your brain so that you can see how this is all laid out, okay? When you think of the tabernacle, the tabernacle is a big complex, and it's a it's got three tents. It's a tent within a tent within a tent. And so you have the, the outer court, which is the big open outer court. And you see there, there's, a, there's an altar for sacrifice. There's a bronze basin where they would do ceremonial bathing and wash and clean, you know. And then there's the altar for the burnt sacrifices and so forth. That's outside. That's, that's in that big courtyard. And that's like, that's designed for everybody. Anybody can go in there with the priest. They go in. That's where you, you bring your lamb, you bring your sacrifice, and the priest works with you to, to worship God and to celebrate together in that space. Now, within that space, there's this other space called the holy place. And the holy place, only the priests could enter that second tent. 
And in the holy place, you have a couple of items. You've got this table with the bread on it. This bread was baked fresh every week called the showbread. Twelve loaves of bread, one loaf for every tribe of Israel. And with this table, there's this candelabra, the menorah. You and I call it the menorah. It's probably didn't look exactly like the the menorah does that you see at Hanukkah, but close enough. So you've got this menorah that they would have with this table. And then inside that tent, you have this place called the most holy place. And in the most holy place, there's only one piece of furniture. It's the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is this gold box, a little about, about four feet by four feet cube box, gold poles, and it has this lid on it called the atonement cover. And on the atonement cover, there are these two angel statues, the cherubim, and they're facing one another. This atonement cover on the ark is also called the mercy seat. It's got two different names, atonement cover, mercy seat. Mercy seat is pretty cool, I think, because the Jews believed that this was the footstool of God's throne on earth. Think about that. You've got God's throne. It's the seat of his authority and his judgment and his rule. And he's, you know, he's the king. And this is his footstool to his throne. And so this is where God rules, see, and governs over the world. And this is why this Ark of the Covenant was so important. And I think it's amazing. Think about this. It's the footstool of God's throne where God, where God touches earth. And what do they call it? The mercy seat. See, where God meets with earth, there's mercy. We need mercy. God doesn't come to earth right there with judgment and with fire and brimstone. It's not the kind of thing that people have. These misconceptions about the heart of God, right? He's, it's the mercy seat where he comes and he intersects with earth. And so this is this most holy place. And he's saying that once a year, only Aaron or the high priest can enter this most holy place, this tent, this innermost tent, the tent within the tent, within the tent. And this is what we're talking about on the day of at one minute. Let's keep reading. Now we're going to read verses 3 all the way to verse 28, okay? And then we'll walk through this. Verse 3, this is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he's to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. 
but the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness." Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place, and he's to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area and put on his regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself, the burnt offering for the people, to make atonement for himself and for the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The man who releases the goat as a scapegoat must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. The bull and the goat for the sin offerings, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, that must be taken outside of the camp. Their hides, flesh, and intestines are to be burned up. The man who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into camp. This, verse 29, where we started, is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Okay, now, I know you and I read this. I was just thinking, you and I read this, and you're probably thinking, oh, yeah, okay. You're not taking it super seriously. But remember, his two sons just died in the presence of the Lord. Do you think they 
heard it a lot more seriously than you and I just did. I'm thinking, yeah, okay, I don't want to be the next guy to die in there, so how do I go in there and do this? Exactly. So you and I read these details, and maybe these details bore us a little bit, but I guarantee you they weren't bored by the details. They paid attention to every single word. And there's a lot in here, so I, I want to just, here's what I want to try to do. I think it's important for us to see the drama. Leviticus 16, this whole thing is designed to be dramatic. It's, it, is, it is theater. I mean, it's ancient theater, but it is theater. Uh, I mean, it might not have smoke machines and mirrors and stuff like that, but I mean, it is like designed to have maximum emotional impact on those who participated in it. So let's see if I can help, and I'm praying, Lord, just help us to, to get this in our imaginations, because I'm really hoping that we can see this, and because I think if we can see it, then we will appreciate it much more. Is that, is that fair? So, so try, to, try to picture this, okay? You've, you've seen that big tent, the tabernacle picture, and now everybody's gathered in that outer court. They're in that outer space. They're not in the tent of meeting, they're not in the Holy of Holies, they're in the outer space. And they're packed in there. And it's, everybody's there. Men, women, children, they're all in that space. And they have come because they want their sins to be forgiven for another year. And they, they know that this has to be dealt with, or we're going to die, right? We want God to walk with us, so our sins have to be covered. So they come in to this, and they're packed in. And it's a, you know, I guess Anthony Fauci would have a heart attack probably. So many people packed in one spot, you know. It's a super spreader event. They're all in there, and they're just, and they're, they're just, they're in there. Now, this whole thing is meant to be like sensory overload. You've got the sights. You, you see the priest. You see the goats, the two goats that get led up. See, the people give these two goats over to the high priest, so there's this kind of ceremonial type thing. Then there's, then there's the, the altar. Then there's the smell, the, the smell of incense and the smell of dead animals and blood. And, and there's, this, there's this mystery. What's going on behind that, tent, that curtain over there? Nobody can get back in there. Only the high priest is back there. So there's this mysterious element to it. And then there's this, this, there's this suspense. Is he going to die or is he going to live? I don't know. We know about Nadab and Abihu. They died. It didn't work out for them. I hope he doesn't die. There's this suspense. The, the whole thing is designed to just grab your emotions and to keep you on the edge of your seat the whole time and to suck you into the drama of it. Okay, and then as we go, as we go, there's 12 steps that Aaron walks through. Now remember, they're all watching this. They're all right there. Here's the 12 steps. Let's see if we can fly through them real quick. Um, verse 4, step number 1, verse 4, Aaron took a bath. And yes, he did it in front of everyone. Literally, he'd be scrubbed from head to toe, not a speck of dirt, not a grass stain, not a smudge, nothing. He could have no dirt on his body. And he was literally inspected. They would make sure Aaron was clean. Step one. Step two, he puts on his clothes. 
And these are special clothes. They're linen clothes. In fact, if you go back to chapter 8, you discover these are not the same priestly clothes that he wore every other day. Every other day, he would wear, it's a pretty ornate, very ornate robe, colored. He's got a breastplate on with these 12 stones on it. He's got this special turban with a gold plate on the front. I mean, it's, you know, he's, he's pretty decked out normally. But this is, he's basically stripped down in linen undies. You know, he's there. It's, and it's these clean linens. And many commentators think that the reason why he had to wear different clothes for this was because in this event, he is representing, he's a man representing people before God. And so he comes plain. He comes humble. In other situations, as he's working as a priest, he's working as a man who represents God before men. And so his vestments were much more ornate because they were more representative of God's glory. Is that kind of cool? So here he puts on these special clothes. Okay. Then he receives these two goats. Look at um, verse 5. And it's interesting that the two goats come from the community. And we don't really know how they did that. But you wonder, how did they, like as a whole community, did they all vote which two goats have to go? Or how do they do that? But somehow the community of Israel comes in and they go, okay, we're going to take these two goats. And I imagine they would have ceremonially kind of led the two goats through the crowd to where the high priest was located. And they present these two goats to the high priest, and the two goats, the high priest receives these two goats, and, and he simply receives them and sets them aside. See, there's mystery. Well, what, what, what's happening with those two goats? He just took those goats and set them over there. See, he's, you got to hook the people. They're getting hooked. Now, step four, Aaron takes a bull, and he sacrifices it for his own sin and for the sin of his family. This is verses 6 and verse 11. Um, I was thinking about this. Isn't this what we all want in a leader? Don't you want a leader who acknowledges his own sin, his own frailty, his own faults, his own shortcomings? I'm a sinner, see? And here's Aaron. Can you... Can, do you see the humility that it would take for him as the high priest, the high priest, and stand in front of the entire Israelite community and confess his sins and the sins of his family? Every fight they had that year, every lustful thought, every twisted thing, right? He's confessing them all in front of the whole Israelite community. See? And he's asking God to forgive his sins as he sacrifices this bull and burns it on the altar. Now you say, why would the bull have to be burnt up? There's probably three things that are going on in a burnt sacrifice. In the burnt sacrifice, it, it represents three important things. Total dedication. The whole thing is given over, isn't it? The second thing it would represent is total transformation from flesh to ashes. This bull goes, you see that? Total transformation. Isn't that kind of like you and me when we give our hearts to Christ? Total transformation. The old is gone. All things have become new. 
And then the third thing that might happen, that the third reason why this sacrifice had to be burnt up, what it would mean is it would be total transference from earth to heaven. Can you picture how smoke, you know, you ever watch the smoke of a fire? It sort of goes up and then just disappears into thin air, doesn't it? And so this, that's a picture of, like, this bull has gone from earth to heaven. <laughs> it's gone, right? It's sort of this total transference. So now this thing that was a bull has now given itself completely. It's total dedication, total transformation, total transference. So, so now imagine you're waiting. You're waiting. A bull doesn't burn up in seconds, how long do you reckon it takes for a 2,000-pound animal to be completely consumed by fire? And you've got to stoke that fire. And remember, the crowd is watching this entire time. And they're staying quiet. They're keeping their kids quiet. They're standing there watching as this bull pays for the sins of their high priest. And then we come to step five. Step five, Aaron cast lots for the two goats. This is verses seven and eight. Now, nobody really knows what it means to cast lots. Some people think of it as like drawing a short straw. You know, we've, we've kind of done that before. Uh, some people think it's like playing like dice, some kind of dice thing. Truth is, nobody knows. But somehow they determined that this goat was to be a sacrifice. This goat was to be the scapegoat. But then again, these goats are set aside. Catch the drama. They took him up. He sets him aside. He brings him out. They cast lots. All right, this one, this one. Set them aside. The audience, what's going to happen with those goats? I don't know. There's mystery. Meanwhile, the bull's burning up. You've got the smoke going. Can you see this in your imagination? Step six, Aaron takes this censer with coals. He takes the coals out of the fire where the bull was being burned up, that, that, those coals. Takes those coals, puts them in a censer, and then he takes verse, uh, verse 12 and 13. How many fistfuls? Two. It's an odd number, isn't it? I don't know why two, but he tells him take two fistfuls, not one, not two, not three, two. Take two fistfuls and put them on the censer. This would create a huge plume of smoke, fragrant smoke, just, oh, I mean, the whole place would be filled with smoke as a result of that. It's kind of interesting. The idea here is twofold. First, the incense together with the coals from the offering would represent the prayers of a penitent people seeking forgiveness from God. Here's this burnt offering. The incense rising before the Lord. It's, penitent, it's, it's a penitent people asking God for forgiveness. Second, the large cloud served a practical purpose because it would shield Aaron's face from seeing the face of God so that he couldn't see God's face and live, right? So he needed to not see God because God says, if you see me, you're going to die. So let's fill this joint with smoke, 
Let's, let's burn your eyes with smoke so you can't see the glory of God. So when he takes this incense behind the curtain and he's sprinkling the blood on the atonement cover, he's doing it through a cloud of thick smoke. And, and just a, a brief excursion. Can I just, here's something fun. You know, verse 2, you notice in verse 2, God says that he will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. He's going to appear in that cloud of smoke over it. Jesus is coming back on the clouds. And that's something. Matter of fact, if you want to do a fun study, just follow the concept of the cloud. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's a theme that weaves all the way through the whole Bible. But here you have a cloud that conceals the face of God. And what happens when Jesus returns on the clouds? Every eye will see him. And that, um, that's amazing. Okay, I like that. Step seven, step seven. After that, so he's got a censer with the coals and the smoke. Step seven, Aaron then comes out from behind the curtain. So he's been behind that curtain. Everybody's wondering what's going on in there. They can, they can see the smoke because the, it didn't have a roof on it, right? The, it, did, it, just, it was an open space. So they could see the smoke coming up, and they don't know what's going on. Is Aaron going to live in there? Is Aaron going to die in there? They're waiting. Aaron comes out then, whoo, big relief, and he takes the goat that had been set aside for the sacrifice, and he sacrifices that for the sins of the people. So first Aaron gets his own life right with God, and then he can help Israel get right with God. Do you see how, he, how that process worked? He takes the bull for himself and his family, and now he takes the goat for the people. So Aaron gets his, for his life right with God first, and then he gets Israel's life right with God. After this, step eight, Aaron takes the goat blood back behind the curtain. So he disappears behind the curtain again with the blood of the goat. And he does the same thing with the goat blood that he did with the bull's blood. Sprinkles it seven times on the Ark of the Covenant. And then look at verse 16 again. It says, in this, it says, In this way he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and the rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. The tent of meeting, it's that holy place. It's that second tent. So the largest tent is the tabernacle, then you have the holy place, and then the most holy place. The holy place is also called the tent of meeting. And he's making a sacrifice to cleanse that from the sins of the people. It's interesting. How does that place get sin on it? Why would the, most, why would the holy place need to get cleansed from the sins of the people? It's almost as if our sins... Dirty up God's house. Isn't that interesting? Why would our sins dirty up God's house? And yet they do, don't they? Just think about how our sin impacted creation. I mean, creation, you could call creation God's first house, in a sense. What did our sin do to it? It brought a curse. The thorns in the ground, I mean, pain and childbirth, you've got... All, I mean, all of that stuff is a result of our sin, sickness, disease, death. It, it all, literally, our sin has stained, hasn't it, God's place. 
And so here, there had to be atonement made for God's house. We're going to cleanse the house. It's as if that little tent of meeting became like a snapshot. It's a representative of all of creation is what it was at that point. And it's being cleansed now by, the, by this blood. You know, it's kind of interesting. Climate change, right? That's not a new concept. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And it's not because of our carbon footprint. It's because of our sin. <laughs> our sin it had the greatest impact on the climate of the world. Anyway, that's another whole issue. Verse 17. Verse 17, he says, No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in until he comes out. So imagine that Aaron's inside there and everybody else is locked outside. And the people are waiting in suspense during this whole time. Um, it's a picture, my friends. You've got one person, the high priest, one person representing all the people before the throne of God. And this is a picture of Jesus, one man representing all people, one man paying one sacrifice for all people. And just like the Israelites are waiting outside in that larger courtyard, watching the high priest do this work and, and trusting that his work is working on their behalf, you and I do the same. We place all of our trust in the work of one man, Jesus Christ. He did the work. I'm counting on that work. Aren't you? And so this is, this is what they're doing, the same thing. And then he emerges, the high priest emerges from out behind that thing. He comes out into the large open courtyard. And verses 18 and 19, step 9, Aaron uh, cleanses the altar in the courtyard. It says, then he'll shum, now, then verse 18 says, then he shall come out to the altar. So can you picture all the people are crowded in there? So now they're going to have to back up and give a little bit of space around that altar so that Aaron could do his work on this altar, because they're all packed in there, okay? And now, and then the most dramatic event. This right here is the climax. Like, between steps 9 and 10, that's when you would break for commercial, if you were making this a movie. Because right there, everybody's hanging on what's going to happen next. Step 10 is the climax of the whole event, the scapegoat. They call the goat over. The goat comes over. Now, remember what happened to his buddy? Right? Buddy's gone. Goat comes over. And the priest, it says, verses 20 to 22, that remember, see, and, and now Aaron takes both hands and he presses them down on the head of that goat. And, and the word to press means he would lean, like he pressed heavy. You're, he's leaning down and pushing that goat down to the ground like that, pushing heavy on it. And as he does, look at what he does. He confesses the sins of the nation. Look at verse 21. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the wickedness, all the rebellion, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. Oh, Lord, forgive us. As a nation, forgive us, Lord, for the millions of millions of unborn children that we've slaughtered. Oh, God, 
forgive us as a nation for screwing up our kids, confusing them. They don't even know if they're boys or girls anymore, God. Forgive us. Forgive us, oh God. Forgive us, oh God, for having sex with anything that moves, for treating sex like it's just nothing. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, God, for the disobedience, for the, for the rebellion. Forgive us, God, for all the marriages that have been torn apart by divorce. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for our addiction. Forgive us, God. Forgive us for our materialism and our love of money and stuff and comfort. Forgive us, God. Forgive us, Lord, for treating you like you're nothing. We just, we just, we just treat you, God, like you're just some concept that we made up and, and we treat you the same, like you're Buddha, you're Mohammed, you're Krishna, you're all the same. No, God, you are God. You are God. There's no other God. There's no other God. You alone, you alone rule, Lord. You share your throne with no one. Forgive us, God. Forgive us, Lord, we pray. Forgive us, Lord, I pray. And the priest goes on. Can you see it in the people? Can you see it in the people? He's confessing the sins of the nation. He's confessing them. He's laying them on the head of that goat. He's transferring all those sins onto the head of that goat. Do you see this? And then, and then, and then, when he's all done, when he's all done, you can imagine it's awkward. He's just called out, man. He's, I mean, right? Did you feel a little awkward somewhere? It's funny. It's awkward. Why, why is it awkward when we talk about our sin? Because we know we did it, didn't we? I know it. You know what? It's nice to pretend like I'm okay, you're okay. But the truth is, we're not. That's the truth. That's the reality. The truth is, we're screwing it up royally. That's the honest-to-God truth. And we want to pretend like everything is just beautiful and, you know, we're, 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 we're making it happen. It's good. We're good. Everything's good. It's not. And the beauty of this ceremony is, as a nation, they're repenting of their national sins. They're, they're bringing them before the Lord together, as awkward as it is. But, but do you see the grace of the Lord? Remember, truth and grace go together. Truth says you're a sinner. Grace says I've not condemned you. See? The beauty of this ceremony is there's grace in this. We're, we're, we're acknowledging the truth, but we're transferring all of that to that goat. And now a guy comes, and, and there's different theories about who this person was. It might have been another priest. It might have just been somebody in the community. Some people think that they might have actually used a Gentile, might, might have grabbed a local Gentile to come and take this scapegoat out because nobody wants to be near this thing. I mean, this thing's got all the sins on it, doesn't it? It's got all the, this is nasty, this goat. I don't want this goat. Like, people are like, back away. <laughs> Who wants that thing? So they were, so they, 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 they grab some local Gentile, you know, some guy. Hey, I'll give you 20 bucks. Take this goat out the camp. <laughs> I wonder. I don't know. But this guy comes in after the priest has done all this. Now he comes in and he takes this goat and he leads it. And can you see the crowd parting the way 
as he takes the goat out the tabernacle, and it's like the goat has left the building, right? The goat is gone, and there goes our sins, and they're watching it go out into the wilderness. And some come, that's right, hallelujah. See, look, you have one goat that gets slaughtered. This is forgiveness. You have another goat that's the scapegoat. This is God forgetting. God forgives. God forgets. Thank you, Jesus. And so the word, actually, you want something fun. The Hebrew word for this scapegoat is the word azazel, azazel. And if you just Google Azazel, you can probably kill a good hour of your afternoon just following all the different links that it takes you to um, because they really don't know exactly what all happened to this goat. Um, but Azazel, it could mean that it, it, could, it can simply mean to be sent out or to be dismissed, or it could refer to a cliff. Some think that, uh, the, that the scapegoat was led out to a cliff and tossed over it. Because uh, obviously you don't want that goat coming back, do you? Can you see that? That'd be kind of funny. Two days later, the goat comes water back into the community. Ah, <laughs> anyway, uh, so you don't want that. So they think maybe the goat might have just been chucked over a cliff. That's possible. Or, or one thing, actually, I think this is pretty cool. One tradition says that they would tie a scarlet cord around the goat's neck, and the, the person, the handler, would lead the goat out. And then just before he tossed the goat over a cliff, he would take the scarlet cord off the goat and bring this scarlet cord back into the community, and they would hang the cord in the tabernacle area where everybody could see it. And at some point during the year, that scarlet cord would turn to white at the end of the year as the year progressed. And some people think that this is actually what's behind Isaiah's statement. When Isaiah says that the Lord has that the that God when God urges the people, though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Some people think like that's the story behind that that phrase. This scarlet cord the truth is we don't fully know. The simplest way to look at it is this. You've got a goat slaughtered to pay for sins. They're forgiven. The other goat is sent away. Our sins are forgotten. God forgives. God forgets. Now, can you imagine the drama of it all? The smell of smoke fresh in their minds. The sense of relief. The priest has survived his ordeal behind the curtain, and he came out. This man has just led the goat through the people out into the wilderness, it's disappeared. There goes every sin that we've committed in the last year. The goat has left the building. And this is the picture that Isaiah has in his mind when he says that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him, on Jesus. God, Jesus is our scapegoat. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. See? And then verse, then step 11, real quick, two steps, and now we're done. I know. I just looked at the time. I, my apologies. Step 11 is this. Like, can you imagine? This would have taken hours. And they're standing out there. It's right, standing out there. Um, they're not in, in chairs. Anyway, step, step 11, Aaron changes his clothes. He changes his clothes, and he takes another bath. That's verses 23 and 24. Um, and then step 12, Aaron has another burnt offering, a burnt offering for him, a burnt offering for the people. This is verse 24. 
This is what's called an ascension offering. Um, and you can read about it actually in chapter 6. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 6, you read about the ascension offering, the burnt offering. And the idea here is the smoke goes up to God and it's pleasing to him. This offering would stay lit for the rest of the day, for the rest of that night. It would be a constant reminder to all of the Israelites, God is pleased. All is well. And this is the Day of Atonement. It's the power of a fresh start with God. And, and this whole thing points right to Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, the pastor of Hebrews actually draws this out. Look at this. In Hebrews 7, Jesus is the faithful high priest. In Hebrews 9.24, Jesus entered into the sanctuary just like the priest did. In Hebrews 9.12, Jesus is the sacrifice. He's, he is that lamb. In, in Hebrews 9.28, Jesus is the scapegoat. So he's not just the offering, the slaughtered lamb, he's the scapegoat lamb as well. So Jesus is both of those. Isn't that amazing? The whole thing points to Jesus. God atoned for the Israelites, and God has made atonement for you and for me. God would say to you and to me, yes, you have sinned, but I have it covered. And this gives you and me the freedom the freedom to move on, the freedom to grow. There's two big ideas. I'll just close with this real quick. The one is this. Atonement is a gift. God does it for you. You, you don't do it. Did you catch that? It's a gift. You know, this really um, has, I, I'll be honest with you, until just a couple of months ago, I'm, I'm amazed like I, that I, I'm just now seeing this for the first time in my life. I always thought that people in the Old Testament got saved by doing their works, by doing their Judaism thing, following all their rules. That's not what Leviticus 16 says, does it? Their sins were forgiven because God atoned for their sins. And they got saved, if you will. I mean, let's just use that word. They wouldn't use that word, but you and I can. You know, they, they got saved, if you will, the same way that you and I do. They, they had to stand there and trust that what that priest did was enough to make them right with God. And you and I do the same. We stand in our place and we trust that what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago is enough to make us right with God. Same thing. We, we're saved the same way they were. It comes down to faith, doesn't it? It comes down to trusting that what Jesus did is enough to make me right with God. And, and the, that's the second big idea. The ritual itself, that doesn't, that doesn't take care of the sin. It wasn't about the ritual. I hope you see that. The, the, even though there's 12 steps to it, even though the ritual was a big deal, it wasn't about the ritual. The whole thing was designed to link the people to the sacrifice. My sin, my sin has led to that. And I trust that the sacrifice of that bull and the actions of that priest are enough to cleanse me and make me right with God.
And I think Jesus died on the cross. This makes sin, this makes, uh, back up, this makes salvation, forgive me, salvation, it makes it available to everyone, doesn't it? But friends, it only gets applied to those who trust it. You have to trust it. it. See, the ritual by itself doesn't save you. The act of Jesus by itself does not save you. The act makes salvation available. You must trust it. Not in your own goodness. Listen, when I stand before the Lord someday on Judgment Day, and you and I all will, and he asks me, why should I let you into my heaven? The answer is not I was a good person. The answer is, well, Jesus paid the price on the cross and his blood was shed to make forgiveness available to me. And I'm trusting in that, Father. That's what I'm trusting in. I'm, you know, it's almost like, it's almost like if God were to ask me that question, I'd almost have to say, well, Lord, I, I don't know, don't ask me, just ask Jesus. He, he did the work. <laughs> I'm just here because, he, he, you know, he told me something about a free meal. <laughs> right? I mean, I, I'm trusting in what Jesus did, not in my good works. And this is what I want to invite you to do today, to trust in his work on your behalf. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.